The Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast with Brian Moon and Laura Militello. This podcast series brings you interviews with leading NDM researchers who study and support people who make decisions under stress. Welcome to the Naturalistic Decision-Making Podcast. This is Laura Militello from Applied Decision Science. And I'm Brian Moon from Perigee and Technologies. Today we welcome Shauna Perry. Shauna is an emergency medicine physician and also runs a consulting firm called SJP Consulting. In both her roles as a physician and a consultant, she actively advocates for systems-level views of patient safety. She is an active member of the naturalistic decision-making community, the Human Factors and Ergonomics Society, and also the Resilience Engineering Association. Shauna uses her vast and varied clinical experiences to mount, mentor countless resident physicians and to inform applied research. Shauna very generously serves on panels, gives invited talks, and collaborates on writing projects to share her frontline perspective on the organizational constraints, competing goals, and other challenges emergency, emergency department physicians face every day as they care for patients. Dr. Perry spent six years as the Director for Patient Safety Systems Engineering at Virginia Commonwealth University Health Systems and is currently an Associate Professor of Emergency Medicine at the University of Florida Health Science Center in Jacksonville. Welcome, Shauna. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Laura and Brian. I am beyond flattered and honored to be um, invited to your podcast. Ah, well, we're so happy to have you here. I wanted to start out and ask if you can remember when you first connected with the NDM community. Um, do you remember how you got interested in NDM? Um, that's a great question, and you're going to take me back um, many, many decades, um, older than my uh, appeared stated age. Um, <laughs> and um, my it was actually sort of a, a, um, a chance, a serendipitous uh, a communication that my research partner at the time, Bob Weir's, had had with someone within NDM. And, and I think we had just read uh, Gary Klein's book, Sources of Power. And um, Bob had found out that the, you all have uh, conferences every few years. And there was one that was being held at uh, Asilomar in uh, Northern California. And um, that was our first um, exposure to uh, NDM. And I remember it vividly because it was such um, almost like a homecoming for us, uh, especially for me. We were both clinically practicing, but for me, it was nice to have someplace um, where I could go. And there was now a vocabulary for the stuff that I took for granted. That was the work that we did every day in the emergency department. So that was, the book was probably our first, I know that was our first exposure to naturalistic uh, decision-making in NDM as a, as a the discipline. And then the society was through that first meeting at Asilomar, which was, um, it blew our minds, just how comfortable it was, relaxed it was, the amazing conversations we had, um, and the ability to um, see the work that we were doing playing out in other domains, sort of talk to someone who worked in a military setting, and studied it to talk to you know people like Rona Flynn who was looking at leadership, and um, and all, and many of them at that time were just starting out starting to look at uh, healthcare and patient safety. So that was my first sort of general exposure to uh, NDM. 
Interesting. So I have a memory, and I can't remember if this was before or after that conference, but you and Bob invited me to um, uh, give a, a kind of co-workshop at a Society for Emergency Medicine Education meeting, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and we um, we kind of unpacked an incident where uh, um, the healthcare folks could not get the meds they needed because of a malfunction of that Pixis machine. Right. Do you recall that? I do. Um, this, the, the, the meeting was a society for academic emergency medicine called SAEM. Okay. And the year, I'm not going to lie, it was probably, wow, somewhere, it, was in the, it was in the 2000s, <laughs> somewhere around probably 92, I mean, 2002, 3, 4, something like that. Because we were doing a lot of work at that time with, through the Society for Academic Emergency Medicine to get, um, information about the work, and I'm using air quotes here, the work that we do, the cognitive work that we do into the literature for emergency medicine and hopefully thinking it would go beyond that because we realized that, um, especially from an educational standpoint, there was little attention paid to how we were training our residents to think about the work that they were doing. Um, it was sort of taken for granted that you were thinking when you made a diagnosis, when you uh, devised treatment plans, when you uh, approached a particular uh, patient, but th- that was new to you. But there was very little, almost no conversation about what that entailed and the kinds of skills that you were bringing to the table. Um, one of the things, and this is kind of tangential that, as I'm going back even further, that as I'm thinking this through, led us to think about NDM was the work that we had done with the Med Teams project um, through uh, Dynamics Resource Corporation. It was like around, I think started about 1999, 98, something like that. And we had, we were one of nine facilities that were part of a large uh, military grant from the Department of Defense to look at introducing teamwork principles into emergency medicine and actually constructed uh, a training program amongst half military, half civilian facilities um, to introduce these these materials and concepts into healthcare and see if we could help to restructure a bit of the teamwork uh, concepts that we had. And I use the word concepts here loosely from a healthcare side, but to see if we could provide some um, foundation for the work that we were already doing and hopefully enhance it and decrease safety, a safety hazards, injury, harm, that kind of thing. And that was, so through those behavioral scientists, we started thinking about how we think. Bob and I got exposed to that. And then that led into NDM, and then that led into exactly what you're describing, trying to use workshops, presentations, uh, publications to uh, raise the awareness for um, uh, being attentive to how we were training people to think about the work that they were doing, which was primarily cognitive. It was not uh, physical. Um, It it, it wasn't predominantly physical. It's predominantly cognitive with a physical uh, aspect to it. So one of the things I have admired about your approach over the years is is kind of your ability to be this ambassador and and move across communities. Um, so, So you are an active clinician and you are also involved in all of these academic societies. And you're just talking about this project looking at, at military teams. Um, but it, it's not as if 
you just learn these things and, and, and use them, you kind of bring people together and perspectives together across these various communities. Um, so it's a really uh, an amazing kind of position you have created and an important role that I think you really have in the, in the scientific community right now. Wow. Um, well, that's, that's nice to hear. That's sort of the, the role I finally um, crafted for myself. And that's finally as in, you know, sort of toward the end since I'm in my, hopefully my last quarter of my career as a clinician. But um, through all of this, um, I think that I, I know that being partnered with a genius, which Bob Weir's was, and, and you and I large joke frequently about being genius minders. Um, <laughs> You with Gary Klein, me with Bob Weirs, right. um, uh, Chris Nemus with uh, Richard Cook, Dave Musson with uh, uh, Helmreich. Um, so, but knowing that, you know, working with those individuals provides, opens up this gigantic 30,000 30, foot view of the world and um, a more, um, uh, uh, what's a good word, uh, sort of theoretical, conceptual uh, perspective of, of uh, the kinds of ideas that we uh, and models that have been developed through human factors and uh, uh, naturalistic decision, but it all. But I realized that the part that I loved the, the most was the translating it into uh, real world. So, in being able to take that uh, larger, you know, perspective and uh, tailor it to. Um, actually apply it and or uh, challenge someone to think about um, their world differently. And that it's, it's, I'm, I'm glad to hear that there's a, a sense that I'm actually being effective at that or, <laughs> or recognizing it because that's, that's the part I realized that I really um, love and enjoy. And it's uh, a friend of mine recently, a couple years ago, had seen me present something and he said, um, you know, you're ultimately teaching. It's like watching you teach the residents to see you do a presentation. And I looked at him and I thought, I guess that is sort of what I end up doing is teaching in small aliquots sometimes, sometimes in larger aliquots, but trying to change people's perspective of, uh, or give them, change their perspective and maybe more importantly, give them some uh, insight into uh, someone else's world and what their, their work world, their social world, their economic world looks like in, in relation to, to, uh, healthcare uh, in particular, um, but also just sort of the, the, the world in general. Um, that is um, a bit surprising to me to hear him say that because my mother was an educator. She was a, she taught elementary school first, second, and third grade for almost 35 years before she retired. And the running joke in our house was none of us were going to be teachers. <laughs> so to end up... <laughs> realizing that that's what I do, part of what I do for a living, whether I'm, you know, talking to folks like you or I'm trying to, you know, teach a family how to manage um, congestive heart failure for grandma so that she doesn't keep, you know, coming into the, to the ER with the same problem that ultimately I think all of my life has ended up around teaching. Interesting. That's kind of a classic, isn't it? We, we, our parents are in us, you know, they just, uh, they come out in ways we never expect. And that, yeah. that's a cool thing to carry forward that, that educating um, tradition from your mom. That's really cool. Thank you. Um, so I wanted to ask, you were saying, you were talking about the, the applied piece 
bringing this theory and these methods and, and these kind of scientific concepts to the real world, to, to, to applications is, is, is really um, what you're most passionate about. And I, I, so I wanted to ask about your clinical work. I know you have worked in large academic, academic medical centers. You worked in VA hospitals, you worked in rural emergency departments. And so I'm wondering if you reflect back on these different health settings, what are some of the difference you, differences you have observed in terms of attitudes and practices related to patient safety and, and you know, sort of people's openness to thinking about this? Um, hmm, good question. The, um, I guess the first thing I should say is, is that having worked in that many settings and I'm not 110 years old, <laughs> that, um, that I, in emergency medicine years, I'm only 23 years in. Um, but I've been fortunate because I've enjoyed clinical work, um, to, uh, work in a, a number of settings. Whenever I get credentials, it always comes up as an issue. Like, did you really work this many places? And it's like, well, yeah, I kind of did because I, I, we did moonlighting as residents. My first year out, I was a fellow. I worked in six different kinds of hospitals in Florida as part of a larger group. And then over the years between moonlighting and clinical and uh, jobs, I've ended up working in a lot of different settings. Combined with now, this last four years now, I guess, six years since I left VCU and went part-time at University of Florida, um, I've been a full-time part-timer, meaning from a clinical standpoint, I work in primarily clinical settings and do a little bit of uh, locum tenens, which is what I like to call a -a rent-a-doctor or traveling doctor kind of work. So it's allowed me to see multiple parts of the country and different kinds and types of uh, healthcare and healthcare settings in general. So, I, so that's why when you talk about the range of places, I, I think it's important to give some background and that it's not that I'm a terrible doctor and I keep getting fired. Um, <laughs> so the um, so what's particularly been striking to me um, it was I look back over the range has been. Um, to a certain degree, not just in relation to pain, I think it affects people's perspectives regarding patient safety, but I think the priorities of each of these environments is quite different. And that part has been quite striking, especially since I've been working in um, more, uh, I've done a few stints in the last five or six years in places that are uh, more isolated, more rural, um, or facilities or uh, healthcare groups that are um, functioning at the margins because of either economics or because of uh, the uh, socioeconomic environment around them or their location, for instance, being in uh, the middle of rural Indiana, for instance. Um, The consistencies I've seen that have been heartwarming is how much people, meaning the workers, are doing everything they can in the facility or in the emergency department to care for whoever comes in the door. No matter how um, minor the problem may be, uh, how jaded or tired the staff may be, uh, in general, there is a desire consistently to do right by people. Um, I, I'm yet to run into anyone that I ever thought was um, being malicious or injurious or uh, demonstrating, you know, just clear-cut malfeasance. Um, but what I have found is that the priorities and the pressures at each of these institutions, each, each of these types of healthcare settings is very different. 
So when I'm in an academic institution where the priorities tend to be more focused towards uh, the training programs and a, a constant tension and pressure between that and uh, the financial health of the institution, um, the, uh, the tensions and pressures on uh, the workers, the residents, the attendings, the nurses, the staff um, is different than when I'm working in a uh, smaller uh, safety net facility that has only 200 beds in the entire hospital or 150. And the uh, priority tends to be focused on uh, trying to stay afloat and trying to do the best one can with remarkably limited resources. And I've been struck by um, the types of decisions that I find myself making in uh, those resource constraint settings that I never had to consider in a, uh, an academic setting and how different in the community or suburban setting the decisions are uh, that I'm having to make uh, uh, and the based on very different uh, availability of resources, information, etc. Can you give so, us an example? Um, so, for instance, the... Um, when I'm working in the rural settings, and rural being, you know, further out suburban areas, probably a catchment area of about 200 miles, which means that patients are driving in from potentially that far away to seek care. Um, I find that the lack of resources, meaning um, uh, last week or so, I've had a, a number of uh, patients who had intracranial uh, bleeding on their brains, or they had been in a, a severe car accident, and there, of course, no, there is a no. There's a neurosurgeon is not available in those kinds of settings. The surgical services and the uh, intensive care services can't meet the needs of these patients, and the I find myself making the decision that they need to be transferred very quickly. Mm. That the amount of data that I need to support that decision um, is actually quite small. Um, dear, for instance, the patients uh, had a fall. Uh, I know they're on a blood thinner. This is what I'm hearing by ambulance. Um, their mental status is now, per the paramedic description, is um, altered. They're a bit confused, kind of combative, and um, they'll be here in 10 minutes. I already know they're going to leave. That, I, uh, that the ability of that facility to support the needs of that patient are... Um, are, are just not there. So I, so challenging the system to admit this patient is not in that patient's best interest. And I'm already asking the nursing staff to n contact a helicopter service to be on standby. Because once I stabilize this patient, they're going to have to go to a higher level of definitive care. In an academic, so, so my, so my cognitive process has become very quickly, it's, it's a, it's a, it ends up quickly being sort of a yes and no, go or stay. I and I find that I can make those decisions. I, I made them more with more reticence when I first got into these settings. I, I couldn't quite adjust to the idea of sending the patient elsewhere because I was used to being in an academic setting where the majority of the resources you need are going to be there and you are the primary receiving site for these kinds of patients. So I, I, I had only known... Uh, emergency medicine primarily from the standpoint of 
we take the worst of the worst. Our doors always open, send them to us. But on that other side, this idea of sending someone out and having to navigate the constraints of other organizations' uh, limitations. So for instance, on occasion, I have to send that patient to another facility, that same patient who I'm concerned has had bleeding on the brain after a fall. I at times are not able to send them to the academic institution because they're overwhelmed. Mm. They don't have bed space. Um, if I do send them there, they'll lay in the ED, and the ED I know is already up to, up to the gills with patients laying in the hallways, etc. So then I have to start making decisions about where else can I send you. Very different decision. So, so, so that then means that I'm trying to introduce this patient into another healthcare system that sometimes is not as, that, is, that reception is not as open. Um, that, that community facility is working under a totally different set of constraints or pressures in that given day or time. And they will say, yeah, we have a neurosurgeon, but do you really need to send them here? We really don't have, you know, he's in the operating room or he's out for the week. We could take care of him. But so I found that the pushback as a person trying to send the patient forward um, was something I had never considered because I'd always been on the receiving end the majority of my career. Um, So I've become very, very uh, cognizant of how um, the how diagnostic, especially that's sort of the area I've been working in lately, how issues related to uh, diagnosis, diagnosis safety, uh, from especially from an emergency medicine standpoint, is governed more by uh, it's governed by a number of performance shaping factors, but a number of them are related to uh, resource constraints, uh, accessibility to um, particular kinds and types of treatments or options. Um, I worked and that, that, and so then this idea of, uh, uh, did someone make a diagnostic error starts to become for me and for many people, um, a little fuzzy, right? It, it starts to get nebulous because, um, based on there's so many things that can influence one's ability to make decisions and how far one can go in the diagnostic process. Is it really fair to label someone as having made some kind of cognitive decision, you know, failure, which is what diagnosis is, uh, it's cognitive work. Is it fair to have them label as having, uh, you know, in some way failed um, when the uh, pressures placed upon them in the midst of that decision is, uh, are inordinate and at times latent and difficult to see? Very interesting. Yeah. So, so you sound very much like an Indian researcher as you're explaining this situation, uh, <laughs> the, the context and the cognitive challenges. Uh, I, I'm wondering what this sounds like when you're talking to your colleagues uh, and you're trying to uh, help them understand these kinds of issues and sort of what's, what kind of pushback you might get or have you found that, um, you know, you struggle to get traction uh, in certain uh, situations where you're you're trying to put uh, these issues into the broader context, um, can you give us any examples of uh, of times either that they've been well received uh, these ideas, or maybe times you got pushed back on? Well, it depends on which hat I'm wearing. If I am wearing my um, administrator hat, 
uh, and I'm working as I did at uh, UF as the director of the emergency department, which during the 12 years I was doing that, I our volumes were running about 98,000. I had uh, a faculty that was primarily clinically based or clinically oriented. We educated 54 residents a year, but it was a very uh, open and um, uh, it was an open intellectual environment, right? People wanted to learn. They wanted to know more. Um, it was easier to get traction with a lot of the ideas that we were talking about here uh, that I mentioned earlier and that are, like you said, NDM sort of related. It was easier because people were inquisitive and often would bring us, myself and Bob Weir's, stories of their own experiences with um, how decisions were being made in, in uh, critical and non-critical situations, uh, anomalies that they found themselves running into as they were uh, doing their own form of, of metacognition, which they didn't know the word, but they were, you know, they would say it as I was driving home from my shift and I was thinking about how things went today and blah, blah, blah. And they would bring us interesting cases. So in those settings, it was actually quite easy and it was fun and it was uh, much less of a challenge unless you were talking to a resident. And for them, it was, uh, it could often be quite difficult to bridge uh, their uh, anxiety and uh, uh, stress around working in an environment with such a high degree of uncertainty. And in, in those settings, um, they often just looked at me like I was insane. And then <laughs> I had started to develop a lot of uh, examples to sort of help them um, view the work they were doing. And one of the examples I would use would be to talk about problem spaces. And I would let them present their patient to me. And it's very specific. I, I required a very specific sort of detailed way when you present it to me. So then we can use that data to function, as I would tell them, like Sherlock Holmes. And let's take that, that information at varying levels with which you are, with times that you're receiving it, and see if we can start putting some bounds around the problem with this patient that you're trying to approach. So there's what the patient came in with and told the triage nurse when they came through the door, i.e. I have chest pain. And then there's the fact that they have multiple other medical issues like COPD, they've had three strokes, they're uh, allergic to every antibiotic on the planet, and they're coughing like they might have a pneumonia. And their vital signs show that they're becoming septic and the infection is spreading into the bloodstream. What kind of, and so I taught, I actually use my hands or I, I draw a picture and say, can, let's, let's look at what the bounds of this problem space is. And can we decide which ones are going to be priorities to deal with because they have consequences right now for the patient and for you and for the emergency department? And then can we talk about the one and, and the actions that go with that? And then let's talk about what other data you need to gain in order to more clearly delineate what this sort of nebulous sphere looks like. And that sometimes if it's, a, if it's truly just a paper cut, your problem space is going to be tiny. You've done some uh, investigation with history, physical, x-rays, whatever, and have convinced yourself to a, a high, fairly high degree of certainty that really is just a paper cut. And it isn't a paper cut that they developed as they were falling down the stairs while they were you know, having a fainting spell. And the residents look at me kind of like, wow. And that's usually interns. 
by the time they're seniors, they usually say, why didn't somebody tell me this when I was an intern? Um, but so all that to say that it, it's, it was, it's much easier, I think, better received in academic settings. Um, in the, when I put on my other hat, so when I put on my hat as uh, an administrator trying to uh, run a patient safety program for a large healthcare organization, um, it was hit or miss. And a, a lot of the times it was uh, difficult to get some of these, to get penetration with some of these ideas because they go against the grain of how many of, in the, what I call carpet alley, um, how they're viewing the actual work that's occurring in a healthcare system. Um, we are, for all intents and purposes, a business that provides a service related to the care of other human beings. That's a different stance than the individual who's in the environment actually providing the care and standing at a more a, 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 a position that's potentially um, more uh, altruistic and less financially oriented. Then, and, and I don't think either stance is wrong, but I think I, I found that the introduction of uh, issues related to uh, cognition and how decisions are made under high stress, high consequence, uh, highly uncertain situations is uh, at odds with um, looking at a more bare bones, uh, 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 what's a good word here, uh, uh, more financial structured uh, organizational construct of a business. Um, so there it was hit or miss. And uh, by the time I left uh, VCU and then in, in other areas, places where I've consulted, I think over the years um, there is a growing awareness that you can't blame the individual for being a bad apple or for, you know, quote unquote, making errors, unless we think, start to pay attention to how that individual is thinking and making decisions. Uh, and what are we doing to support that? Hence well-meaning attempts such as uh, electronic medical records, uh, clinical decision rules built into that, um, evidence-based medicine, uh, uh, evaluations <clears throat> of medical therapies are an attempt to t indirectly to address that issue, but I don't think it's being met as head-on as, as, as I think we could be if uh, uh, NDM uh, principals, practitioners, uh, experts were able to uh, permeate healthcare. One last piece on this I'd like to add is that um, when I put on my hat as um, a clinician um, working day to day, um, I find that the production pressures um, don't allow me to have these conversations very often. Mm. That the, um, and that's in all the settings that I work in, that the um, limitation of, of uh, resources, meaning number of doctors, number of clinicians, acuity of patients, um, uh, precludes us even having those conversations, attending to attending, other than as very short uh, passing uh, comments like, wow, I didn't expect this guy to have this. And then maybe 90 seconds of, of exchange of a story, and then we're back to, we've got 40 in the waiting room. There's two more ambulances coming in with a bad track accident. There's only two attendings on, and there's uh, 40 rooms in this emergency department. 
uh, all of high acuity and one nurse practitioner with nurses, many of whom have only been out, if we're lucky, uh, six months from nursing school. So the, the, these conversations end up being with myself <laughs> on the way home <laughs> as I'm, or, you know, which is a, 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 in some cases a 45 minutes to an hour ride, um, drive where, uh, or flight, plane flight, where I'm reviewing in my head, I'm doing my own self-analysis of what did I, what did I miss? What did I not see? What undermined my ability to connect those dots in a timely fashion? such that perhaps treatment or diagnosis uh, was delayed. Well, oh, now that I think about it, I missed that because at the same time I had the heroin overdose come in right after I intubated that patient. I did a quick assessment. I meant to go back. And then by the time I go back, I realized that the tube um, needed to have been pushed down further so that the patient would be more comfortable. Um, okay. In the future, I've got to figure out a way to navigate that, find myself my own rules of thumb or um, uh, a personal um, checklist because this is different than when I'm working in an academic setting where I've got eight pairs of eyes or ten pairs of eyes all involved in that one procedure. In this other setting, it may just be myself, a respiratory therapist, and one nurse. All of us pulled in different directions. So... Um, I don't want you all to think that I'm schizophrenic and talking to myself all the time, but <laughs> the um, but my um, I'm finding that it's um, it's the the ability to introduce it into and that and that's where this com compare and contrast as you were asking earlier, Laura, um, where the the uh, differences have been most striking is that in in some of the uh, uh, settings that I go into in other areas. The clinicians don't even have it. We don't even cross enough long enough to have a conversation about how was your last shift? What did you run into? We're not learning from each other uh, in in the same way that I wish that I'm used to in the academic set about learning about how each of us is thinking or what our pitfalls, obstacles, unusual cases um, have been to, to, you know, to support our own learning expertise. And then, of course, you know, pattern recognition. Wow, that is such an interesting response. I want to, I want to, um, just like reflect back a little bit. So one, one thing you're saying is that some settings, there's just more opportunity to reflect. So when you're in these academic, um, medical centers, there are more people who do some research, um, read, read these things that they have a, a kind of mixed role, uh, clinician and, and, and some academic or research role. And so there's just more space and, and more vocabulary to talk about this kind of thing. Yes, and there's um, better circumscribed opportunities like uh, rounds at the end of shifts where the entire team is walking around together looking at patients so they're all sitting in a space for 20 minutes reviewing the patients. Um, they have conferences that are consistent. So there are there's space within the work day, but then there's also well-delineated circumscribed opportunities where that kind of, of uh, reflection is and um, uh, analysis of how quote unquote you've been thinking as a resident or a doctor is um, provided. And then another piece I heard that was really interesting is that you have kind of developed a, a strategy for helping interns and residents um, see how you frame a problem and help them um, 
not just think about this problem, but how to frame a problem and how to think ahead. What, what's the information I'm going to need next? Um, so, so, so what do I know now and what will I need next? And so this kind of um, modeling of your own cognition is very cool. Thank you. Um, <laughs> after teaching for so many years, what I have found is that um, often the residents' frustrations come from um, being un- trying to develop uh, an understanding of how to synthesize everything that's coming at them. So sure. there's, there's visual information, there's auditory information, there's uh, 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 olfactory. I mean, there's a, a, I, I can smell, and most emergency physicians who are um, experienced can smell a, a GI bleed when it comes in the door. It has a very distinct odor to it. Um, there is uh, electronic information coming at you. There's family calling on the phone. There's nurses who are bringing you bits of data information. There's all this coming, and that's all for one patient. Now, if you multiply that by two, four, six, eight, upwards of 10, 12 patients that you're trying to manage, I find that often the transition from medical school um, wrote more um, individualized, you know, case analysis that they do during medical school to now you've got all this, because I think in three dimensions, you've got all this stuff swirling and moving around you as an intern, as a new doctor. How do I start to grasp or organize this? How can I? And I find that that's often their struggle is in trying to figure out how to visualize, um, how to construct, and then, you know, sort of give themselves a frame <clears throat> for approaching um, all of this deluge of um, information. So um, it was an it. it came out of, you're right, my own approach, but it was just an attempt to see if I could give them something to anchor on because the anxiety, you're already in a high-risk situation where you know that every decision you make needs to be made as quickly as possible because there are consequences to um, not recognizing that a patient has, you know, is septic and has a, a, a is going to be a crashing soon. That may go, they may go into cardiac arrest. Well, how do you sort through that kind of tremendous amount of data. And um, I found that, like you said, this, this particular construct, they either resonate to thinking like Sherlock Holmes and or this idea of problem space, a sort of balance between those two. And, and usually one of those two resonates with them and it gives them some place to anchor and then hopefully start to build um, their own, build their skill of being able to um, manage um, caring for patients in the emergency department. Yeah, this this just sounds like a great example of taking, you know, um, Pat Benner and the Dreyfus Brothers um, kind of developmental model and, and operationalizing it, right? We know people get through medical school or nursing school or whatever, and it's really hard and they learn a lot of stuff. But then to actually put it into practice, you have to reorganize that knowledge. And, and there were all these other pressures coming at you. Um, and uh, yeah, and so you're kind of operationalizing that theory, that model, and, 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 and finding ways to scaffold folks so they can start making sense of that experience sooner. Yeah, and, and that's a good word, because the other part is no one discusses it. <clears throat> it's not part of the, the medical curriculum at any point that you will be thinking the work you do now is a form of cognitive work. 
and just the use of the word, just to introduce the word work, I'm doing air quotes as I speak to you, into the lexicon of healthcare, and um, back to Brian's question, that's been one of the, one of my um, missions um, and one of my consistent messages is to see if we can allow healthcare to accept that it's okay to say that we're doing work. It's not bad work, good work. It's just a kind of work. And that, that doesn't diminish the, what we do and what we contribute to uh, humanity and society. And so that's been, but that's never discussed. And the first time I say things like, well, what kind of, you know, let's talk about your cognitive work. Let's talk about people's clinicians, healthcare providers, nurses, everyone just stares at me because that's not in our lexicon. That's not a word that um, means anything to us because we're not uh, acculturated or the scaffold, as you were saying, that we're building on um, does, not include, does not include that word of work. And I think it is assumed to um, be somewhat of a, um, almost a negative term. Like it's almost too neutral that there's people, there's, there are people who do work. And then there's those of us in healthcare. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah. And and that's just like, yeah, we do clinical work. We're still moving our hands and feet, just like the guy who's, you know, changing the muffler on my car. And we face many of this, of many similar um, kinds of obstacles, barriers, decision-making, etc. The scale of urgency and acuity is different. The substrate we're working on, materials are different. If he breaks my muffler, when he tries to attach it, he'll go get another one. If the orthopedist breaks my leg off and he can't put it back on, he can't get another one. But the stakes are higher because now I'm going to have a prosthesis. But it's it's still the same human beings invested in performing work. And that probably has been uh, a consistent barrier, uh, an obstacle that I've been trying to work through. And if, if we in healthcare could just start thinking about that or, or being attentive to that, um, I think we could go quite a ways. Nice. Yeah. So, yeah, that's so fascinating speaking with you. Um, uh, so, well, so. <laughs> I was going to ask, you know, the NDM community loves a good, I just knew story um, where, where, you know, you just uh, were in a situation, intuition kicked in, you're able to act quickly, almost without thinking and make a positive difference. I'm wondering if you have a, a favorite story like that from your career. Hmm. Um, I, I probably have a number of those. I'm um, sure you do. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sadly, um, <laughs> I, I guess there's, well, first, there, hmm, the first story that comes to mind is um, one of, uh, that I'll, I'll relay, but I think I want to put this caveat out there first, and that is, um, we, you and I, are, uh, three of us are speaking during um, the time of COVID-19, and that has totally shifted and changed. Um the perspective of every human being on the planet um, related to this disease, but especially in healthcare, it has leveled the playing field. It has um, truly uh, recalibrated all of us back to zero in terms of how we address and understand this disease. 
it, it appears different every day. In fact, it can appear four or five different ways in the same shift without, you know, and it, I, I know it has, um, don't want to say undermined, it's, it's challenged everyone's expertise. Um, and so when you ask the question about, you just know it, um, those kinds of stories, it's almost like I have to reach back into the dark ages <laughs> because uh, now I spend all my time going, I wonder if this is COVID. This is so weird. Is this COVID? Anybody know this is COVID? Because there isn't that there, we, we don't have the um, depth of exposure, experience, pattern recognition, um, tools for diagnosing, gathering data. They're just not there. So, um, it, the, this may not be my best story because I feel like I'm reaching back into, you know, my, my, my dusty old box. <laughs> I'm going, there was a time I could actually make a diagnosis. Um, now everything's COVID until proven otherwise. But, um, the one that comes to mind off the top is, um, is a little man who, he was an older gentleman, uh, schizophrenic. Um, he's showing up in one of the community facilities. Um, he, he drank, which was likely due to medicate his uh, uh, mental health. And he was very disheveled. I remember going in the room and he, um, the story was that he had um, blacked out. That's what it was. That he had, had that he had blacked out. Um, the, he had been found down on, on his front porch, kind of groggy. The assumption had been made that he had probably had a seizure and was uh, post-dictal or, you know, confused because there's a period of time that people are confused after a seizure, and we call that being post-dictal. Okay. Um, and so he was came in billed that way. That was the story that when I went into the room. And But when I went in, I did see uh, an older African-American gentleman who was um, disheveled, seemed a bit, you know, kind of out of it and spacey. And was a difficult historian because of his uh, schizophrenia, and he and, med- and complications from his medications. He says um, the story he gives me is that he was standing on the porch, and then the next thing he knew, he was down. And um, no matter how many probing questions I ask, how many times I try to rephrase it, he really can't give me much more than that. And looking at him, you know, it's like, well but I can't tell it anything particularly different about you. So let's just say, for instance, if a gentleman says to me he fainted and he's in a, a, in a full suit and tie and there's mud or dirt or tone, you know, fabric, you're like, okay, he did go down. Something happened. But looking at this gentleman, there just wasn't much that you could pull from that. And I looked at his vital signs and his oxygen level was running low. Instead of being 97, 98%, he was more like, 88. I'm like, that's weird. And he doesn't have any oxygen on. And I, I ask him if he smokes. He says, yes. Everything else looks pretty good. And I'm like, I wonder. And I smell, I get, examine him and I smell a little alcohol on him. I'm like, I wonder, what could this be? This doesn't quite make sense. And I'm not convinced that he fell. So I said, listen, we're going to draw some labs. We're going to do some stuff. Blah, blah, blah. I'll be, let me run out, put those in and I'll come back. In the meantime, when I came back, he sat up in the bed. And he'd been sitting, now he's sitting on the side of the bed, and I can see that actually his knees are scraped, and they're fresh. And when I start looking at his other extremities, he's got a scrape on one arm, and he's got a scrape on a shoulder. Um, once I pulled his gown back, I'm like, okay, something happened, for sure. 
I'm, but this seems more than just your basic seizure. There's something else going on. So I, um, we do his tests and I have them pull a blood gas, which is a measure of, uh, how much oxygenation a patient has in their, uh, how well they're oxygenating by, uh, diffusing oxygen across their lung fields and, um, which can give you an idea if there's something primarily wrong with their lungs or is there something else. And the gentleman's oxygen level is incredibly low. Just, I can't remember the exact number, but I remember it was like so low that I was like, huh, I think this guy might have had a PE, pulmonary embolism. But I don't have any more risk factors. I'm not sure. So I decided I'm going to scan his head, which I knew, his brain, which I knew I was going to do anyway, as you, you do for most patients who present unconscious or we don't have a good story. And with that, then I went ahead and did a CT scan of his chest. And he had blood clots everywhere, all throughout his lung tissue, and one very large one that they ultimately ended up taking him to the operating room to remove. And wow. that is let that case stands out to me because I remember having a very strong sense of relief that I had not um, hand waved him off as a drunken little alcoholic, little schizophrenic black man who um, doesn't take good care of himself that I had, that I had not succumbed to the easy bias, um, but had picked up, uh, had followed through on the small clues and they were very small. Um, that suggested that something had happened, something wasn't right, and we and I needed to investigate it to be sure that I wasn't missing something. Um, I did find out he survived the surgery. Um, he uh, was in a nursing home facility for a while, uh, rehab to recover, and he um, ultimately um, was able to move back in with his family. Wow, that's a great story. So, I'm, I'm sorry. No, I was going to say, it, 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 as we're sitting here now, I'm just having that same sense of relief again. Yeah. That it would have been easy. It was a good, it, it, in, a, in the parlance of healthcare, that was a good catch. Right. Uh, and, and a surprise. I and mean, that was not um, what I would have expected. Um, and I think it highlights a little bit um, where we feel we're standing now as we're trying to, to navigate um, understanding COVID-19, um, right now, this, this sense of it could be anything, uh, how do I make sure that it's a good catch? Yeah. Yeah. So in this case, the low oxygen was one of the things that was kind of niggling at you. Like that did not align with someone who just fell. Correct. And it, and it could easily have been the result of his smoking, right? Heavy smoker, often patients with mental illness smoke fairly heavily. And he could have been, he could have had COPD or emphysema, which could also give you that low oxygen. Um, but that, you're right, that was the first thing that just didn't quite, it didn't, it, 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 you're right, it niggled at me. It, it, it didn't sit right. There was something not right, quote unquote, about it. Um, and if I had not looked, I think if I had, not, I might have been more likely, I'm not going to, I can't be hundred percent sure. I might've been more likely to put it towards COPD if I had not found evidence of the fall. It was the, the scrapes on the knees and the arm that made me go, these are fresh. 
something major happened of some kind. But even if it was trauma, let's say someone had pushed him down the stairs, there was something different. There was some something major had shifted in this man's life, in his world, in that few minutes that that he can't articulate to me. So the you're right. The oxygen level was the first hump, but the second, the probably the strongest stronger signal for me were were the bruise the um, were the abrasions on his knees and his on um, his arm. And and were those consistent with a seizure or not exactly? No, they they were consistent with a fall. They told okay. me that they told me that there had been um, some kind of unexplained trauma that he doesn't remember and his body this is that Sherlock Holmes piece of it mm-hmm. the pieces you know these are hints that you know, most people don't walk around with fresh abrasions on them right. and granted some people would say he could have fallen yesterday he could have but these were clearly new and so I've got this story of man found down conjecture that it was probably a seizure based on his appearance and what medical history they had for him. But he also has sustained some kind of trauma with the low oxygen, which tells me there's a lung issue somewhere in the mix of his problem, problems and why, why he fainted. He could have just, he also could have fainted because he was septic and he had a bad pneumonia and really bad pneumonias can cause your oxygen to drop and can manifest as, you know, they can present any way in someone who's overall not a healthy person. But the, the abrasions, uh, to, to me, signaled that there was probably more going on here than was usual or um, greater than what had been described for me. The other piece I think I feel like I should add to this is um, massive pulmonary emboli. Um, well, pulmonary embolisms in general are extremely difficult to diagnosis, diagnose, and they're usually made post-mortem at autopsies. Oh. They're not, they don't give any clear, there's no one, there's not a clear set of delineated uh, pieces of evidence that can help us to know whether or not a pulmonary embolism is present or not. And there are two or three um, sort of evidence-based rules like uh, 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 Pied and some others where they give us sort of a rating scale where we can pre- try to predict the probability in terms of low, medium, or high, <laughs> intermediate or high. I mean, that's as close as we can get hmm. based on a, a, a constellation of findings like whether or not you have a fever, is your heart rate up, is your oxygen low, is your do you have a history of cancer, blah, blah, blah. So they're not even they're, that, that list for waiting your decision uh, about whether or not to test for a PE um, or likelihood, because there's a higher likelihood of one present, those particular qualifying factors are, are, are very generic. So that's why this ends up being a, big, a good catch, because that would not have been the first, second, third, fourth, fifth, or sixth thing on the list of why this man was brought in confused. Yeah, this really is a great story, um, Shauna, but I'm also finding myself giggling over here at, at, uh, at just how impossible it is for Laura to stop herself from uh, conducting a CDM interview. Uh, 
I was feeling a little like a bug <laughs> under the microscope, but I wasn't sure. So before she gets to the third suite through the, uh, the details, yes, uh, I, I got a quick question just about this idea of scaffolding. So mm -hmm. uh, to me, one of the great advantages of the NDM uh, toolkit uh, is getting exactly this kind of rich detail to describe all the cognitive work that happens and the context it happens in. Um, I think one of the one of the dings, one of the knocks, if you will, on NDM over the years, um, and maybe this is just me making the ding, but um, it is sort of the so what, right? So we can describe all this stuff in great detail, but uh, but so what? How, how do we how do we help that scaffolding process? And I'm kind of wondering if, um, if if your exposure to NDM and NDM methods and and NDM solutions um, ha has uh, has influenced the way you practice medicine uh, in, in specific ways. Um, and you, you've kind of mentioned a few along the way, certainly your own metacognition, but I'm wondering if there are ways that uh, the, the NDM solution set, if you will, uh, has helped uh, influence the way you practice medicine and you've helped others to practice medicine. And you can sort of make that link between here's an NDM tool and here's how I've seen it improve people. Um. I think I alluded to this earlier in that it, for me personally, um, gave me a language to uh, discuss and understand what I do as a physician, as an emergency physician, um, and has allowed me to, um, I mean, I've handed papers out from NDM authors on occasion. Mm -hmm. Um, and have um, had eyes open. Um, it's, a, it's given me a, a rich repository of uh, books, articles, and like you said, sort of toolkits that for those who are interested, I can pass those along. Um, I think penetration has just has been really hard because NDM is not in the, in the medical literature. Mm -hmm. um, if one goes to PubMed um, uh, through the National Library of, of uh, Congress or National Library of Medicine, um, we barely tap into a few of the human factors journals. Um, so the exposure in the so what category that you're talking about is, I think it's because there is a lack of exposure. And I don't know if there's a way to cross-reference more of the uh, uh, papers from uh, this domain into healthcare, but I think that would help overcome the so what because it would be more readily available um, or would pop up under um, let's say we took the story I just told and wrote a paper, and it has uh, NDM analysis of diagnosis of PE. Um, when someone's looking at pulmonary emboli, this is a paper that could potentially show up in that list of citations. Mm. So I think that's, that's why the so what has been difficult to uh, uh, overcome. Um, the in, 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 my, in my personal life, definitely the language piece. But uh, on the other side, like I said, I really think that's the main thing. It's it's matches so well to what we do in healthcare. Um, to 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 know how the human brain functions at this very these very specific cognitive tasks that we do, I think would um, help to change the direction healthcare has been going of blaming the individual. If we can, un if we can talk about how we think, then I, I believe 
the idea of work, healthcare as work, and as a form of human performance would then be supported by uh, uh, changes in our work environment, tools that are given to us, et cetera, just as we do with soldiers and other uh, high-risk professions. Cool. Well, we like to wind up each of these podcasts with kind of a lighter type question, something sort of fun. So, Shauna, the question I have for you Uh-oh. <laughs> is if you could instantly become an expert in anything, what would it be? <clears throat> in anything? Well, I can tell you if I had my druthers what I would like to be doing right now. <laughs> <laughs> is, that, is that in the same general category? Sure. Um, yeah. And it, I always wanted to go into art history. So I always wanted to be like a professor of art history and study art history. Um, it didn't, I remember looking into it in college, but I saw that they didn't eat, um, <laughs> because they didn't make any money. And, um, but that I would love to instantly be an expert in like Renaissance art or the classics or you know, masterpieces by Rembrandt. That would be my, um, if I had my druthers, that's what I would want. I love that. Don't, don't let my secret out. Shh, <laughs> no, I truly, I love that. I, you know, I'm often when it's not in the midst of a pandemic, travel a lot. And when I'm in cities on my own, I, I always go to the art museums. It's yeah. so fun. And I don't know anything about art. Um, <laughs> but it's just fun. <laughs> it, it is. It's just fun. And it's, it's a whole other, I can feel that side of my brain turning on. Um, it's like, wow, look at that. The inside of my brain, the creative side actually kind of works a little bit. Um, but yeah, that would be my, that, and I, I, I joked around with my family that I'm going to go do that. And then COVID hit and they're like, what are you going to do now? I'm like, go to work. Um, (laughs) (laughs) but, um, I, since we get to edit and I'm glad we do, Brian, did I answer your question? You did. No, I, I think, um, the, the idea of, of NDM as a perspective and models and, and sort of language uh, to put, you know, th- those things can be scaffolding as well. Mm-hmm. Right? And so, um, so we, you know, we talk about training, we talk about uh, software tools, and we talk about, um, you know, inputs to uh, systems uh, integration projects and that sort of thing as sort of outcomes of, of all these rich descriptions. But I think what you're stressing is uh, is just to be able to uh, introduce, uh, as you said, a way of speaking uh, and a way of of description that is explanatory, right? So it's more than just uh, it's more than just a, a war story or a water cooler talk. Uh, yeah. and, and actually, what your your comment about the literature? I mean, there, there's I mean, obviously, there's case studies in the literature, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and those case studies are are often, um, you know, pitched as they should be in sort of medical language. But I, I wonder if that's maybe a place where this uh, bridge could be made uh, is that uh, perhaps through giving language, through giving uh, the, the models and perspectives, those could augment uh, those case studies. Because what you essentially just told us in your story was a case study, but it was also about how you were thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And so it's not just these sort of externalized uh, facts of, of the patient and their circumstance. It's also about you sort of uh, your reasoning process and you thinking through it. So um, th- that might be a way where uh, you, you would see more NDM-ish things and models and perspectives sort of work their way into the literature. 
Yes, exactly. Um, healthcare is we, especially once we get out into practice, we learn most from the stories. I've been hanging around with a lot of communication professors, and we they highlighted for us in uh, some other work we were doing, looking at uh, transitions and signovers and handoffs of patients. Uh, the fact that we take a story and it turns into uh, a list of actions, activities, uh, very specific, you know, data points of information that we then uh, work reason through to create another story that is in, in, in from a, that's told from a medical perspective that we then act on moving forward. So the ability to um, the, the, the models we won't remember on the clinical side, the, the names we won't remember of, you know, whose theory of this or concept or model of that, but the ability for us to, for healthcare uh, providers to, to see what we're doing um, through an NDM lens would, would go a very long way because the, the stories are the, 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 the bedrock of, how we learn from each other once you get, you know, out of residence. Right. Great. Well, Shauna, thank you for talking to us today. This has been so fun. Um, oh, glad. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I had fun. I don't get to remember. I don't get to talk to anybody. I'm always in the COVID moon suit. Um, <laughs> but um, hopefully I gave you some stuff you can work with. Yeah, this is great. And so on that note, thank you for joining us for the NDM podcast. I'm Laura Militello. And I'm Brian Moon. Learn more about naturalistic decision-making and where to follow us by visiting naturalisticdecisionmaking.org.